0: This podcast contains explicit content and is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Don't say we didn't warn you.
1: Hi, my name is Madison. I'm Hannah. And you are listening to Who's Knocking? A true crime podcast yeah so we're back this is episode 46 can you believe that we've done 46 episodes well we will have done after this
0: kind of yeah
1: yeah i i think for like 50 we should have a little celebration
0: okay i'm down something special
1: i don't know what but something cool i don't know we'll think about it okay um did you listen to last week's episode yes and you knew about it because I, I did mention like you, this was yeah. this was the second episode we'd ever done and it just like was kind of shitty so that's why I just I was like oh I was trying to like come up with things to do a couple weeks ago and I was like oh yeah the script is like done And I went through and like edited it a little and whatever and uh, yeah what do you what are your thoughts
0: on who did it or just in general any specifically who did it but also I don't know I guess the whole thing. Well, there's no fucking way I would move into that house. Absolutely not. That is terrifying.
1: And I guess in the episode, I was like, I think if Hannah got one of those letters, she would, like, be very scared. Was I correct in that?
0: Yes. (laughs) that assumption? I'm pretty easily scared. (laughs) So, like, but they were, too. They never moved. Yeah, no, they were terrified. I, like, I don't think it would have been them because didn't they lose a lot of money like selling the house and renovating and everything. Right. So what would possibly be their motivation to do that?
1: Well, the only factor, so one, I think it's possible, but I, I still don't buy this that they thought that they could make money from it um, like with media attention. But even if that was the case, like they seemed really reluctant with the media attention to me and like they've, you know, they actively do not want their children like any pictures of the kids their faces are blurred out they don't mention the kids names anywhere they clearly took yeah. um time to get the children's identities out of the letters that have been made public right so that's where i'm like that doesn't make sense like you're yeah. the type of people who really wanted media attention and whatever like there's a lot of people who are like totally cool to like throw their kids into stuff like that and like whatever so like that doesn't jive yeah they weren't stage moms there has been a Netflix deal yep. for the story, but I don't know how much of it is, is to them goes to them because I know that the Does Netflix deal it? I don't know. I have to assume some of it. I have to assume, but I don't know because I, I think a lot of it it was like based off of that one huge article. And right. that's like I don't know if that writer or the it's like the New York, the New Yorker. Has rights to the story. I don't know who has the who had the rights to the story, but the Netflix bought the rights to the story. I have to assume the family got something, but I don't know. But and that was never a guarantee, so I, I don't know. But I just don't think personally. I, I watched someone else's video who like went through the whole thing and and tried to decide what what they thought it could be, and they thought that to them it seemed like the most likely idea that it was them, but only because there's no evidence to to point to anyone else, right? Like either. It's them or it's someone else. And it's like, okay, like what does that mean?
0: Yeah. So maybe it was, I don't know. I I just didn't think it would have been. And you're right that like the Netflix, I know you had mentioned that, but I guess I didn't really take that part in because I know they had sold the house at a loss or they'd spent the money renovating and all that. So- They lost a lot of money. Short term, they had lost a lot of money. Yeah, it's like, it's such a gamble to think that you'd get media attention you know what i mean
1: and such a random thing like cuz it really did seem like they wanted to like buy a house and like live there like they have three kids like their kids are just living in limbo yeah. until plus they really wanted to stay in the neighborhood and i just don't feel like if you're if you're doing it just for like shits did you like why are you like remaining in the neighborhood like do you really you know it just doesn't yeah. make sense so that's why I don't, I don't see enough evidence to point it at them besides I the fact that at the that. end, he started like actually sending letters. Um, but
0: yeah, but and also, well, allegedly the people before had also gotten letters.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, like they, they got one letter.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: So I don't know. I'm interested, in, you know, if anyone else has really real reason to believe that they did it I would love to know that
0: I mean that would be kind of nice like I, w- I would almost rather that be the truth because it's like, be the least creepy, creepy. Yeah. yeah for sure I wouldn't mind that I guess
1: but anyway that's well, that can we can leave the intro at that also send us a shout if you have a really good idea for a 50th episode
0: yeah um
1: Charles Manson people yeah it could be something like super popular I've started working on the one for after this and it's I'm doing another popular one after this but are you gonna um, tell us who or surprise um I'll tell
0: you but I'll I'm not gonna tell the audience okay tell me after yeah um yeah like part of me I mean Charles Manson is like a super famous case but There's so much controversy about what actually happened. So yeah, I feel like I'd need like three weeks to do that. It's just like there's you wouldn't like you can't know what actually happened too. There's so much conflicting information.
1: CIA maybe maybe one hundredth episode. Yeah, yeah, I gotta read that book, Chaos. Yeah, Chaos. That's what it's called. Okay, so today's episode. This is kind of an interesting one. It is another local to us. Um, it occurred in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And so it's like super local to me at least. And um, it's Unsolved. I've been really liking the Unsolved ones. I think it's it's like super creepy. Something about Unsolved is like really creepy to me. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm not the only one. It's not like It's extremely idea. creepy.
0: Well, except for the ones like... Um... Robert Wode, where you kind of know what happened.
1: Yeah, this one is really like you have no idea. Okay. Um, And it is the unsolved murders of Barry and Honey Sherman. Mm. I've I've kind of heard of this. Yeah, this this was big news here.
0: Yeah. Actually, Um, my friend, uh, shout out Rachel, I don't know if she's listening, but I was on a hike with her um, like a year ago, and she was saying that she was telling me about this yeah, there's some interesting stuff. Um, and there's a lot of, a
1: lot of backstory. I read. Where is it? I'm sitting really weirdly So, um, so I got most of the info from this book. Okay. And for those just listening, it's called "The Billionaire Murders: The Mysterious Death." Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman, and it's written by Kevin Donovan, who is a journalist for the Toronto Star, which comes up a lot in here, and the Toronto Star is a one of the top newspapers in Toronto, um, and yeah, I did a lot of research elsewhere, but a lot from this book, cool. so if you're ready, I will get right into it, okay, I'm so. Ready. Um, the date is friday december 15th 2017 it was a cold winter morning at 50 old colony road um, a big mansion in a wealthy area of north york
0: toronto which area
1: uh it's my parents
0: lived in north york
1: north york um let me see what where exactly also
0: we went to school in north york yes it's like so what if it was nearby there um, Although we okay. wouldn't we weren't in school at that time, but
1: were we done?
0: Yeah. It's otherwise we would have definitely heard of it. Baby in York Mills. Okay, that's like really close to where my parents live.
1: Yeah, like pretty north of York Mills. Uh-oh.
0: Like in between <gasps> York Mills and Shepherd. That's like right where my parents live. Yeah, you were They're north of Okay, I shouldn't be like saying where my parents live. Yeah, you were.
1: But in that vicinity. Yeah, in the general area for sure. Uh, yeah, because I see the IKEA.
0: It's close. Oh, there. my God. Oh, so creepy. Uh,
1: so, yeah, it's okay. there. Um, the house belonged to Bernard and Honey Sherman. The six-bedroom home had recently been put on the market for $6.9 million. Mm-hmm. $6. Wow. Wow. That morning at 8.30 a.m., uh, the housekeeper and the woman who was responsible for watering the plants both arrived and got to work.
0: Sorry, this is on a stand. I like how there's somebody who's ju- solely responsible for just watering plants. Yes, that's her job.
1: She comes in once a week, and I guess there's enough. Yes. And, she's, and she's there for like a while. Like, if, if you came into no, my it's place, like and you watered can't plants, just get like somebody else to do that. If you came like, into my place and watered my plants, it would take you two minutes but she's here for hours. So how I'll many just... plants do they have? <laughs> I don't know. Like, cause so I'm saying she comes at eight 30 and okay. So they both arrived. And then the cleaner noticed that the couple's bed looked like it had not been slept in, which oh was God. unusual. And they also found an iPhone on the floor in the powder room, mm-hmm. which was random. And other than yep. that, it was business as usual. Then at 10 AM, the lady's still there. It's an hour and a half. She's still watering plants. What's she doing there? She's watering plants.
0: Also, this is literally like a five minute drive from my parents' house. I'm looking yeah. it up. I wonder if that's okay.
1: Um, okay, so at about 10 a.m., Elise Stern arrived at the house. Elise was one of two real estate agents working on the sale of the home. Elise was a close friend of Honey's sister, Mary Schechtman. The other agent was Judy Gottlieb who was a close friend of the Shermans and Judy was out of town at the time on vacation. So Elise was doing all the showings. So, and the two ladies are still there. Elise arrived to show the house to an interested couple from mainland China and their real estate agent. Elise was a little bit weary coming over. She was pretty sure that it would be okay, but she had tried to get in touch with the Shermans earlier that morning to confirm the showing and she hadn't heard back. So she was just like, okay, I'll just go for it. And I'm sure it'll be fine. Then Elise started upstairs with the clients, showing them everything upstairs, and she worked her way down and ended up in the basement. In the basement was a huge, uh, it was a very big basement. It extended back underneath the tennis courts of the backyard, and she led the couple into the pool room. There was a lap pool in the basement. She noticed before going in that there were some papers on the floor. She picked them up. They were inspection papers for the home. She thought it was odd that they were just lying on the floor, but she just picked it up and continued on with the tour. She pressed the red safety button, which opened up the magnetic door to the pool room, and she stopped suddenly and quickly closed the door after she took a look inside. She told the clients that the homeowners were doing yoga in there and that she quickly had to get everybody back upstairs. Oh, God. The buyers were not impressed with the situation and they did not appreciate being rushed out. But Elise had just seen something that would haunt her forever.
0: Yeah. What was it?
1: I'll get there. Okay. So once the buyers left, Elise rounded up the two women working in the home. She asked the cleaning lady to go take a look in the pool room, which was fucking rude. Like she saw what was in the pool room and then she's like, you yeah, go take a like,
0: that's weird. That's mean yeah lady. but it's like wouldn't you like say something
1: and i don't that's just, like this is how it described it in the book okay i don't it doesn't it just said like she she asked her to go look downstairs so i would like to hear from this cleaning lady like did she say what she saw because if not that's shitty as fuck lady that's
0: really shitty like you're literally traumatizing somebody for life i'm assuming
1: yeah just like she's like oh well i'm already traumatized like rude. That's, i'll just traumatize you now too So the cleaning lady went downstairs, and she came back up visibly shaken, which is why I think she had no idea what she was going. Dude, I mean, okay. Then she said, "Quote, call the police." End quote. But Elise did not call the police. First, she called her friend Mary. Dude, what's up with Elise? Mary told her to call the police. First, she called Mary. Mary told her to call the police. Then she started calling the Sherman's children, starting with Jonathan Sherman, who is the only son of the of the Shermans. Finally after 90 minutes at 11:43 a.m. she called the police. What the hell, Elise? Why that did it take was... her so long? Yeah, it was 90 minutes. The Shermans. It's so
0: weird. What was, so, what was she doing and why?
1: I I I don't know. I think it's suspicious. It's weird. Like why like just call especially
0: when I tell you what she fucking found i can imagine what she found like i you know i'm i know this podcast i know what it's about
1: yeah so i'll tell you so the police arrived and um oh a medics the paramedics arrived first and the shermans were found in their basement pool room both deceased and in a rather odd position barry was found in a seated position legs outstretched Right leg crossed over the left, his back to the pool. He was wearing glasses and a bomber jacket that was pulled slightly off of his shoulders and down, which held his arms at his side. Next to him was his wife, Honey, in a similar position. The jacket she was wearing was also pulled off her shoulders, holding her arms to her side. Both Honey and Barry had men's leather belts around their necks and tied to a three-foot-high stainless steel railing above their heads. Both were fully dressed. Yeah, it's like so such an ominous position. Yeah. Barry's face appeared to be untouched and honey's showed signs of damage. The paramedics pronounced them VSA, which is vital signs absent, which to me kind of sounds like dead on arrival, which I don't know if there's a difference. Yeah, why um, not just say that? But Maybe it's like a Canadian American thing. I'm not sure. They also trampled through the crime scene, ready to attempt to save some lives, but unfortunately disturbing possible evidence. Okay. It appeared that rigor mortis had already come and gone and that the paramedics guessed that they had been dead for at least a day, probably more. Word started to travel among Barry and Honey's friends and family. I guess Elise started that and everyone was shocked and horrified, especially as details began to emerge that look that said, that made it look like a homicide. I mean, what else could it be? Exactly. Now, it was about 4 p.m. when the news of the couple's deaths made it to the Toronto media. The home was sealed off and CSI began to arrive. Constable David Hopkinson came out and made the first statement. And he said, quote, the circumstances of their death appear suspicious and we are treating it that way. End quote. I mean, yeah. Yeah, obvious. He said that the police were inside taking apart the scene and that anyone with information was invited to contact the police. Now. Okay. If- a few hours later, Brandon Price, a detective from the Toronto Homicide Squad, came out and said that the detectives had found no sign of forced entry and that they were current they were not currently looking for any suspects. Oh. So that, that that is like a, a bold thing to say. Like they're not looking for any suspects and makes you makes you assume a that they have someone in mind yeah. or that, you know, it wasn't a homicide.
0: But it must have been, right? Like, there's no. Did they, well, did they say cause of death or no? Well, we'll get into the autopsies and stuff. But okay. this will become
1: a little bit more relevant to say. go through things. Now, around that time, also, a woman who lived across the street approached the police and she told them that she had a security camera on her home, but it also pointed at the Sherman house. Ooh, okay. And she said that her husband and she and her husband had looked at the tape and noticed something and mm-hmm. the officer said that they would send someone over and then two days later the couple still had not heard anything and the the couple knew they had um the way it was set up it was like it would record for seven days and then a race so they're like you know like hurry up guys like yeah like, we need to see it. it what was the suspicious thing um i don't well again we'll see a little bit later okay okay but i will take you back now and talk about who barry and honey sherman are all right. Tell me. Okay. So Barry Sherman, Barry Sherman was born February 25th, 1942 to Herbert and Sarah Sherman. They were born in Canada, both from Jewish parents who had escaped anti-Semitism in Poland and Russia. So they kind of got out right before or in and around the around World War II. Yep. Barry grew up in the Forest Hill neighborhood of Toronto, an okay. affluent area with a large Jewish population. His father, Herbert, was the president of the American Trimming Company, which was a small firm that made zippers. Barry looked up to his father and was always eager to impress him. And one day when Barry was 10 years old, Herbert went to work and he never came home. He suffered from a massive heart attack at his office and died. The rest of the family later learned that Herbert had a congenital heart defect, which he had just never told them about because he didn't want to worry
0: them. Oh, my God like that is that's I have to say though like I I feel like my family's kind of like that too really well yeah. I
1: wonder you know if there's I only know the life that I lived or whatever um but you have to assume that like I don't know if it's like a cultural thing or like it, it's like a trauma thing from. I would say yeah like maybe. it's
0: like gotta pretend like everything's fine but uh or, like, you don't want to, like, worry people. But, yeah, that – or, like, if you talk about it, it'll be, like, worse. Um, Yeah, like, my grandma had cancer, and she's fine. Like, you know, she survived and everything. But she, like, wouldn't, like, tell anyone or get it looked at for so long. And it's, like, probably should have done that. But I, I'm also kind of like that. I don't like going to doctors. But it's just, like, the not – like, not telling somebody to not worry them. It's, like, hey, man, just tell them. Well, just that's – I you, feel
1: like my – and maybe it was because we were like younger whatever, th- whatever, but like my, I remember, I yeah. think my mom might've had a cancer scare once a long time ago. And like, we never heard about it till after, although, you know, fair enough, if you want to like figure it out first. And then my, yeah, I think my grandma also had cancer and, and like, we didn't find out till like way later, but we were also really young. So I don't know if it's just like the young kid thing
0: that, yeah, that's true. If you're really young, but like this guy didn't even tell know. his
1: wife, his wife had no idea. Which is just like, dude. Yeah.
0: Just tell them. Prepare prepare them.
1: Anyway, Barry grew up and he began to suffer from insomnia, which kept him up all night and resulted in in him being super sluggish at school. Mm -hmm. He was often caught daydreaming in class and teachers found him to be unresponsive. In grade five, this earned him the nickname Grandpa and yeah. in high school, both students and teachers began calling Barry Butterball. And I assume that this also came from his pudgy physique. Now, that sounds kind of mean to me, but Barry seemed to be pretty unfazed by these less than affectionate nicknames. And he kind of kept to himself for the most part. I think everybody kind of just thought not much of him. At home, things were very chaotic. His mom had started working as an occupational therapist, which was what she was doing before she started having kids. But then she also took in boarders to help support the family. And I think compared to a lot of the like two-parent households where like, there were stay-at-home moms, this was like kind of a lot. So okay. definitely more normal now. But back then, I think it was like a lot. Um, Things did not seem to be going super well for Barry, um, but that was until his senior year when he met Joel Ulster. Okay. It was during his senior year that Barry learned about a contest in the Toronto Star. The newspaper ran a series of brain teasers and asked readers to mail in their answers every few days. Now, Barry thought that he and Joel could win, and they made it all the way to the tiebreaker and then lost. But Barry was convinced that they actually had one. Barry, unassuming as he was, had become very confident in his intellectual abilities, always positive that he was right. And to be fair, he usually was. And it was said that Barry most likely had a photographic memory. He was actually, like, super smart. Joel Ulster was also quite sharp. And that year, the two of them became total BFFs. Joel... (laughs) Friendship began. Joel was much more social and athletic than Barry, but he recognized Barry's talents way before anyone else did. And in his senior year, Barry became very interested in math and science, and he entered a physics competition and took home first place. Barry would go on to spend a lot of time in the Ulster home, and he grew very close to Joel's father, Ben Ulster. Ben was a successful entrepreneur, owning a number of movie theaters in the city. Mm -hmm. Ben really liked Barry and instantly recognized his potential, and he became convinced that Barry would be very successful and probably go on to win a Nobel Peace Prize one day. The summer that Sherman turned 18, he began working for his uncle, Lou Winter. Lou was Barry's mother's younger brother, and Lou was known to have a pretty severe temper, but he liked Barry and the two got along very well. Lou was very successful and he had four sons. Paul was the oldest and he was adopted. He was two years old when Barry started working for Lou and soon followed Jeffrey, Carrie, and then Dana, all biological sons. So Lou, he ran two companies. One was called winter laboratories, and it was a medical testing lab that ran pregnancy tests on urine samples that women dropped off at pharmacies. (laughs) Obviously this was before Take home pregnancy tests. Yeah. So well, that's kind of shitty that that's how that used to occur because I've taken a number of pregnancy tests <laughs> at this point in my life. Um, and two, the second one was called Empire Laboratories. And this was a dis- distributor of generic prescription drugs purchased from American manufacturers. Okay. So generic drugs were kind of a new thing and a little bit controversial, depending on who you'd ask. Big Pharma would refer to generic drug producers as pirates. They did not like other companies coming and stealing their intellectual property um, and drastically undercutting prices, especially after all the research and development that went into creating these drugs. But on the other hand, the Canadian government was pretty into the idea because they were able to piggyback off of the far superior American drug innovation scene while paying a lot less for the fruits of their labor. And of course, we have socialized medicine here, so it's it it uh, really works in the Canadian government's favor to be getting cheaper drugs that are exactly the same as the brand name drugs,
0: you know? Yeah. I, I mean, it's kind of sketchy, but yeah.
1: It is, but they do turn out, it, it and it's, a, it is an interesting um, conundrum to me because like big pharma for sure has like all its issues, it's issues. Like it's, I don't know like I know a lot of people have criticisms of um big pharma like there's uh, I don't really know like I, I'm not an expert in in what it is but like it's um they just make a shit ton of money but they also yeah. spend a lot of money right like to to create a drug it takes a lot of research and development and a lot of money to create a drug so The generic drugs are great because we can, we as consumers, and especially like the government who's paying for all this money, all of these drugs, which is really us, we are, we fund the government. Um, But then by purchasing all these generic drugs, you disincentivize innovation within regular pharma or big pharma, whatever. So it's a constant battle. It's a constant, like weighing out in a trade-off between um, making new drugs, which obviously we want, and making affordable current drugs, which we also want. Right. Um, so <laughs> fight over that in the comments. I'd love that. Um, there was a question. And that, yeah, that's basically what I was just talking about, that's like what the government kind of had to grapple with when making their like laws and regulations regarding generic drugs, et cetera. So anyway, when, when Barry and Joel graduated high school, they both went on to study at U of T. Barry enrolled in engineering physics, which he chose because he knew it to be the most difficult mathematics program. And Joel went into the humanities program and he would go on to study law. And in Barry's okay. final year, which was 1964, he graduated first in his class and won the highest award in his discipline. Nice. So he was doing... He Barry was a basically a fucking genius. Like, he is killing it. And it was... I, I had read that, like, in his first year, he was fourth in his class. In his second year, he was third. In the third year, he was second. And then in the fourth year, he was number one, like, best in the wow. class. Wow. Which was, like, pretty... Insane. Yeah. Barry then went on to study astronautics,
0: which do you know what
1: astronautics is? Do I know what it
0: is? Yeah. Is it about being an
1: astronaut? Uh, It's the science of the construction and operation of vehicles for travel in space. That's cool. So he went to study astronautics and aeronautics. And aeronautics is the study of the science of flight. Um, And he studied both of these at MIT in Boston. So during his second year at MIT, Barry ended up getting a call in the middle of the night. Lou had died suddenly of an aneurysm. And this was shocking and horrible news, but it was particularly awful because at the time, Lou's wife, Beverly, was suffering from terminal leukemia. And she would go on to die only a few months later, leaving their four boys aged three, four, five, and seven, orphaned. That's really sad. Now, I believe I read later that the wife, Beverly, she was not originally Jewish, but converted when she married Lou. And she stipulated as in her final days that she wanted the children to be raised by Jewish people. So like her family, she didn't want her own family adopting the boys, even though they were like, we'd be down. What the hell? Yeah, kind of random, but she was like super into them being Jewish.
0: Yeah, but like
1: your family, yeah. uh,
0: Maybe her family was not cool though, and maybe that's why she said that. Right?
1: It's possible, but she seemed to be like just super into the Jewish faith.
0: Yeah, people who convert are—I mean, you like have to be to convert, exactly. So so you got to like jump through hoops, you know.
1: Yeah, I heard it's not easy. Mm -mm. So the boys were adopted by a local couple. But some people felt that Barry should have dropped out of MIT to take care of the boys himself. I think he was like 22 at the time. And he was like, I just like, how would I do that? Like, yeah, like he's 22. Yeah. But there was some, some back and forth and some people who were like, Barry should have done it. Okay. So after Lou died, Barry tried to buy out the two winter companies. So they were put under the companies. So the, the inheritance and estate of Lou and Beverly winters was put in a trust for the boys. So like everything was handled for them because they were so young or whatever. Um, and so Barry was like, okay, how about I all like um, buy the company. Um, and he wanted to be put in charge as manager of the winter assets to quote protect the value of the assets for the children of Louis and Beverly winter End quote. Okay. But the Royal Trust Company, who had been put in charge of the estate, refused the offer. So Barry was like, all right. So he instead went back to Boston, finished at MIT, earned himself a Master of Science degree in aeronautics and a doctorate in philosophy in systems engineering. And he ended with a perfect 5.0 GPA. This man's a friggin' genius.
0: Yeah, I didn't even know you could get a 5.0. I thought 4.0 was the best. That's what I
1: said. So Barry made his way back to Canada in 1967. And this was mm-hmm. a couple of years later. And at that time, Barry went to go visit the winter companies to see what was up. Okay. And he was very upset with what he found. There was a new guy in charge, and he was making decisions that Barry felt would drive the company straight into the ground. So he was not pleased. Barry decided to make another offer, this time with his friend Joel. They both borrowed large sums of money from their parents and offered $450,000, but they would assume the company's $200,000 of debt, making the payout to the trust $250,000. The extra stipulation that Barry put in place to seal the deal was that each of the four cousins would be able to one day work at the company if they so chose. and uh-huh. that- Each of them would have the right to purchase 5% of the company's shares after working at the company for two years, provided Uh certain conditions were met. With these details in place, Royal Trust agreed to the sale. Only a few years after the initial takeover, Sherman and Ulster had taken Empire from $800,000 in yearly sales to $2 million, Uh, so they were killing it. Soon, an American company, ICN, which stood for International Chemical and Nuclear Corporation, came sniffing around looking to buy Empire. They offered the men $2 million for the company. Wow. So Barry and Joel were intrigued by the offer. And after weighing everything out, they decided that they would sell. There was one part of the deal that Barry was not fond of, and that was a stipulation that shareholders at Empire would not be allowed to work in the generic business for at least two years. Sherman wanted to continue to work in what he knew. But what ICN was not aware of was that technically, Barry and Joel were not shareholders. Instead, they each had their own holding companies that had shares in Sherman and Ulster Limited who held the actual shares in empire sherman withheld this information from icn until the last possible moment hoping that they wouldn't notice and it turned out that worked okay so i just included that cuz i think that's like kind of brilliant and sneaky and just shows you that like he was he was a smart guy he was like yeah his book. So Barry remained working at Empire Laboratories after the takeover, but his strong personality and need for control got him fired almost immediately. Oh, and okay. the person, I forgot the person who actually fired him, but one of the the people uh, who, one of the big guys at ICN likes to brag that he was the only person who ever fired Barry Sherman. And it's sure. true, it was the only person who ever fired Barry Sherman. Okay. Um, In 1973, he started his own company called Sherman Technologies, and at first he started providing equipment to other pharmaceutical companies, but soon it morphed back into a generic drug company, which would later be called Apotex. Now, Apotex is the company that he died leading, and Apotex went on to be extremely successful. Barry was a cutthroat businessman. He was creative and innovative, and he took huge risks. And the generic drug business is really no joke. There's a lot of competition. You have the government breathing down your neck at every turn, the brand name companies who have a vested interest in shutting you down. There's the whole legal aspect of it all. But Barry Mm -hmm. was determined to win at all costs, and he did. Wow. Okay. Now, Barry spent a lot of time and money on litigation. He launched hundreds of lawsuits against competitors as well as against government regulators who made decisions that he disagreed with. He was constantly in court. This man was an absolute bulldog when it came to business, but Barry was not a mean man. He was extremely generous to those around him. He did a lot of charity work within the Jewish community and beyond, and he made a lot of financial donations, both openly and anonymously. And honey as well. But Barry wasn't only generous with his money. He was very generous with his time and influence. He loved so much to see young people learn and succeed. He loved giving people opportunities. Many of his employees began as high school summer interns who he saw potential in. He loved giving advice to his friends' children and fostering business and entrepreneurship values in young people. It's like he really loved... Seeing other people do well, and particularly in business, it's like if anybody showed an interest at a young age of like wanting to start their own business, he was like ready to not only give them advice but like fund it. Like he, he sounds kind of cool. And that was like, but the thing is, is like that's all he did. So like, you know, it was really really great if you if that's what you're into. But if you were like his kid who was like I like dogs, he'd really be like okay, I don't care, you know, true. So that's Barry. And that was like how he got to where he got to. And I think it's really important to get really in depth into these people because that's how you, you know, can try to figure out who the fuck killed them, you know, Um, since we don't know who killed them. So Honey Sherman was born Anna Reich in a displaced persons camp in Austria in 1947. Um, I cannot figure out why her nickname became Honey. I, yeah. I keep looking for it, can't find it. But yeah. Anyway, these camps had been set up to house victims of World War II.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anna's parents were Naftuli and Helen Reich, and okay. they had been freed by allied forces from a Nazi work camp in Poland. Wow. Horrifying. Yeah. The Reichs would then immigrate to Canada and ended up in Toronto, where their second daughter, Mary, was born. The Reichs opened a small shoe store around Dundas and Kiel, oh, the nice. area that is now known as the junction. Yep. They also took in multiple borders to make extra money like Sherman's mother did. And she described, I think it was, it might've been her, I think honey actually describing like there were so many borders in their house. Like it was divided into so many um, sections. She's like, we actually our bedrooms. I didn't realize that until I got a little bit older, but like we lived in the hallway. Like that was their, Living situation because they had, like wow. every inch of the place was taken up by people. Now the Reichs were not wealthy by any means, but they worked hard and they made a decent living for themselves. They lived just north of their shoe store in a predominantly Jewish area known as Bathurst Manor, mm-hmm. and like, and again uh, they took in borders, whatever. Now Honey's best friend Bryna, described Honey in high school as outgoing, always down for an adventure, ready to try new things. But this girl was always late, always. And that continued into adulthood. Bryna made a habit of always picking Honey up at her place, or else she would be waiting around for her all day. And usually, when she arrived, Honey would just be getting out of bed. But once she was up, she was ready to take on the day, ready to go try new things and go get it. Now, Honey and Bryna both decided to study teaching in university. Honey ended up at U of T. And during one summer, she got a job as a it's, I think it's it's a candy striper, right? That's those like old jobs at hospitals. I always, yeah. like, when I read or it, you I like go in like, to cheer people up. Yeah, but I think that's what it is. But I always, um, whenever I read that, I'm always like, stripper at a hospital? What? It's
0: definitely not that. <laughs> <laughs> just when you read it, it's just imagine.
1: Like, well, yeah, I don't know. But so she okay. was working at Mount Sinai, mm-hmm. um, which is a very big downtown hospital. And that was where she met Cindy Ulster, And she was married to Joel Ulster, who had just purchased a generic company with another guy by the name of Barry Sherman. Mm-hmm. So that is how Honey and Barry met each other through oh. um, Cindy and Joel. And they all became good friends. Now, when Honey and Barry got together it didn't seem like a super like, you know, falling in love type situation. It was more that they like liked each other and got along and they were each the type of person that the other one was looking for. And, it, you know, it kind of all worked out. Okay. Right. And for the most part, they appeared to be a pretty good match and they were super happy together and had a successful marriage and very successful life. Yeah, definitely. But Barry would go on to spend the majority of their marriage working and Honey would take over all the philanthropic ventures And they were very generous with their wealth. They contributed to many charities, mostly Jewish, but not exclusively. Um, And they, you know, Barry would talk extensively about how important it was to be to like, as a wealthy person to donate money. And it's so funny because he was like, he was a liberal, he was like, you know, a big donor of the liberal party and like really believed in like charity and donating and, um, um, like you know funding like welfare stuff or whatever but mm-hmm. he hated paying taxes and then we go on and on and on about taxes and how he didn't want to pay taxes and like trying to get out of paying taxes and stuff and it's like
0: why are you liberal yeah <laughs> like a weird, and, uh... and you donate so like same kind of thing right
1: yeah exactly i don't know well i would say that the argument could be that if you if you don't think that the government is spending their the money efficiently, and if you think the charity or like wherever you're giving your money is spending the money more efficiently, maybe that's it. Um, I don't know. But anyway, um, so back to the murders.
0: God, OK. Let's hear it.
1: So a story had already appeared in the Toronto Sun, another popular toronto newspaper which some people call a tabloid suggesting that this may have been a murder suicide so how did this theory come to be a murder suicide you ask well a journalist from the sun was about to publish a story on the shermans and got a last minute word from a police source about the belts being found around their necks okay that and the comments from the police about them not looking for any suspects was enough to start that rumor and okay. unfortunately, the murder suicide theory was kind of what police started going with after that. And it seemed to really cloud the whole investigation. So I'll go on a little bit about the crime scene here. Okay. So, oh, yeah,
0: tell me. Excuse me.
1: The Shermans were found in their basement pool room. They were fully clothed and definitely appeared to have been placed in a specific manner. Mm-hmm. One thing that was noticed right away is that they appeared to have been placed in a position that was. Eerily similar to an art piece that the Shermans had on display in their home.
0: Ooh, eerie!
1: You haven't seen photos of the crime scene, have you? No, no, those are not made available. And unfortunately, a lot of this stuff is not. They're probably on Reddit.
0: It's possible. It's possible. Let me know that crime remember. scene Reddit.
1: I'm not looking. I'm not going back there. No, <laughs> that's fair <laughs> enough. I don't really want to go there. Um. So that's the uh, the statue. Now this art piece was a life
0: size. That's sculpture. creepy. Why would you want that in your house? That's a creep. That's a well, creepy it's, statue. It's
1: it is, but it's way more creepy after the fact, right? It's still creepy. It's a life size. They look like
0: mannequins. Nothing's as scary as mannequins.
1: That is true. I would not want mannequins in my home. Hello, Herr Baumeister. Yeah. If we recall. Um, so, it's a life-size sculpture of two individuals, a man and a woman, made from a bunch of very colorful pieces of, like, junk and trash or whatever.
0: Right. The so man- weird taste in art.
1: It's true. Um, yeah, this was – it would not be my idea of – I wouldn't want it. No. It's not my taste. It's not my taste. Same. Yeah. Um, but they had it. And it's just weird how they true. were placed, like, basically like the mannequins.
0: And no, yeah that is weird it. that's really weird that's got to be a coincidence that's not that's not a coincidence
1: no like their legs are bent because of what they're sitting on i think the the mannequins but other than that it's a man and woman seated side by side their legs stretch out in front of them and the man has his legs crossed over the other just like Barry, and the woman doesn't i actually hate that it's creepy right super creepy we don't have a lot of information about the statue other than it was made in the 1970s and was okay. given to the Shermans as a gift. And that piece had been on display in their home since it was built in 1985. Okay. Now, there's also a lot of interest in where Honey's cell phone was found because that right. was the phone that was found inside the powder room on the floor. Yeah. Um, and friends and family said that Honey never really used that bathroom. It was clearly like a guest bathroom. It's a powder room. Um, so one theory was that honey was trying to escape her attacker or attackers and hid in the powder room attempting to call somebody, but was apprehended before she was able to do so. And that seems like a pretty logical explanation to me. Yep. There were also the papers that were found on the ground. Then they were clearly Barry's papers just outside the pool room. So that suggests that that could have been where he was attacked. Um, and he was like holding the papers. There was no signs of forced entry. But there was a basement window that was left open to air out a room that had just been painted. And I think there was also some talk of like people had been breaking in in the neighborhood. And um, I think somebody had broken into their home once before. Just as a side note. Like so on December 16th, 2017, their, mm-hmm. their autopsies were done. And um, Dr. Michael Pickup was the pathologist assigned to the Sherman's autopsies. Um, he had also been on scene at the Sherman home. So upon looking at the bodies, there was much to note. First, oh Barry's hyoid bone was intact, and I will get to the implications of that in a minute. Okay. There were also abrasions around Barry's wrists, indicating that his wrists had probably been bound at some point. Honey had injuries to her face. There were abrasions, but no bruising. And this indicated that she had died immediately after the injuries occurred or possibly they were made post-mortem because okay. bruises require blood circulation to form. I did not know that. And that's fascinating. I know that, yeah. And it makes sense. Um, Dr. Pickup could not tell how the injuries were made or with what. Now, Honey's hyoid bone was also intact. Now, the thinking by Dr. Pickup at the time was this. So the hyoid bone is a bone in the throat, and it is often broken with sudden or violent strangulation cases. It is not generally broken in cases of suicide where the person slowly falls into a hanging position. Mm -hmm. But more in the cases where like if you were at like if you recall like a hanging where they like kick the box out from under and it's quickly, Mm -hmm. that would be a hyoid bone bone break. Okay. However, there is some disagreement within forensic pathology regarding a hyoid mm. bone. Some believe that to make a ruling of murder by strangulation, the hyoid bone must be broken, but there have been studies more recently that show the hyoid bone. And it's really hard word to say. The hyoid bones were only broken in one third of homicide by strangulation cases. Mm-hmm. In the other two-third of the cases, the hyoid bone remained intact, and this was due to several factors, including the amount of pressure used on the neck, the condition of the hyoid bone to begin with, and the type of ligature used. For example, a softer ligature, i.e. a belt, and, uh, is less like, it, there's a less likely case that the hyoid bone would break. Also, age seemed to play some sort of factor. It seemed that the older the person was, the more likely the hyoid bone would be broken in a case of strangulation. Now, this information really just seemed to add more confusion to the case, if anything, Um, but it, it did make it harder to say anything with certainty. So, but interesting. Now, Dr. Pickup determined that the Shermans had died of ligature compression, which led to strangulation, although it was not clear how forcibly this was done or with what. It seemed logical that the belts around their necks would have been the most likely cause, but it also could have been done for display purposes because clearly they were displayed they, like they clearly had had their t- hands tied at some point with something and that was gone now. So clearly they had been maybe like tied up and murdered and then set to be where they were so creepy mm-hmm. yeah, they okay. were very purposely placed in that position,
0: yeah. Which is just so creepy. It really is. This actually really uh, is similar to the Herb Baumeister pool room. It is. Actually,
1: I never even thought about that. But yeah, it actually is. Oh, I don't want a pool room in my basement. No
0: way. Never after this. Hell no.
1: So these findings did not rule out the murder-suicide theory. But it did not point to it directly either. When family and friends of the Sherman's heard about this murder suicide theory, they were appalled and nobody bought it. It seemed completely out of character and just no one was no one listened to it. Yeah. Another thing that kind of hindered this investigation was that around the time around this time, there was a huge break in the Bruce MacArthur case, which occupied a huge number of Toronto's best homicide detectives. Okay. For anyone who doesn't know who Bruce MacArthur was, is he's alive um uh, he was a serial killer uh running rampant in the gay community killing gay guys who are generally um um closeted
0: gays yeah that was a crazy case burying them in some poor lady's yard and he and he just wasn't suspected because he was like this like unassuming kind of guy
1: yeah, and there's, anyway, there's a number of things, and we could do that case, too. It's, it's a very interesting one. Very modern serial killer. More local Toronto. Yeah, but anywho, yeah, the, pol- like, the other police were, like, focused on that. place.
0: Yeah. Toronto has a lot of Like, what's up with that? It's fine. So, okay. Barry
1: and Honey's four adult children were Lauren, or are Lauren, Jonathan, Alexandra, and Kaylin and they began to gather along with other friends and family um like the day that they found out at someone's house and you know to figure what what was going on the kids were all grown but all of them to varying degrees were still very spoiled by their father he okay. bought them all homes um some of them more than one paid for cars trips pretty much anything they asked for and all of them were due to inherit Barry and honey's over 4 billion dollar estate yeah. Well, and there's speculation because nobody really knows how much he was worth. They know like the, and the, the four to five, it's like four to 5 billion that they were assuming, but that was based off the, the um, Apotex, his company, but he had so much invested in uh, other places that some people say it was, could have been as much as, what did somebody say? Like 10 or even
0: more. The area they lived in, it's definitely like a upscale area, I would say. Oh, no, their house was worth like however many million, So it was definitely. But and they were in the middle of selling that
1: house to move to I think they were moving to Forest Hill to like build their own house right. that was going to be like even bigger. See, now, see but...
0: that's the thing, because the area they were living in, it sounds like they were in like a a more expensive pocket of that area. But it's not like if you're somebody in Toronto who has that amount of wealth, that's not—I wouldn't say that's the area for that.
1: Well, so they built the house. They built it in oh, they 1985, built it. so they had been living there for a long time, and they built it like custom, and it was like very big. It had tennis courts. It had a pool in the basement. So, like, they built it to be custom, and like it was, you know, there's some houses in the neighborhood. I'm sure they're probably like less intense and like cheaper, but this one was yeah. like had all this shit but also honey and berry and we'll get to it probably in a little bit but like they were super loaded and like they took lavish vacations and like paid a lot for their like health care and stuff like that
0: but they were not super materialistic for their level of wealth that's yes that makes sense then because like most people who would buy a house in that area and have as nice of a house as them which is still like obviously extremely expensive it would be It's not billionaire level, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think they definitely bought it and made it probably before they were at billionaire level, but then didn't move because like they both drove. Yes, they 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 were
0: relatively frugal, like considering yeah for their level of wealth. Like they each
1: had like she had a a, like a Lexus car that she had had for ten years. Nice car, but but like it was ten years old, and like she just kept getting it maintained. Same with Barry; like he would had four cars over the over his life, and like he like kept it until it was like worn to the ground right um they both like she was into like designer clothes and stuff but like not she was like a weird kind of like hoarder lady where she would like buy like if if she would go to like a designer place and like find something that was on sale and buy like seven of them and then just keep them in her closet and never wear them i love hoarding it's like so, like so weird shit like that. No, I and, totally get it. I fucking love hoarding. Yeah, they just like were not the most. They were not the level of materialism that they could have been for their wealth. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. They didn't come from money, right? So no, neither of them. So that could be part of it. I feel like it could go either way. Either like you get into you get money and then you're just over spending, or you're like kind of saying. But it is interesting because, like if he lived in let's say the bridal path which is another area of toronto then everybody would know he's that rich you know so yeah
1: and i think like i think to me based on my research it kind of seems like barry was just like so preoccupied with his work like he just literally didn't care about anything else and i like there were and also like you know he talked they it was friends of his talked about like they would be like at a golf course or whatever and like one of the like they'd be like why don't you have a rolex and he'd be like why would i buy a rolex that's a stupid way to spend money and it's like that would have been like literally nothing to him and that's interesting uh, he like when it was they were they flew first class when they were flying like on long flights but they other than that they would fly economy which like at that level like there's no reason yeah. to You could probably have a jet <laughs> like exactly yeah so it was it wasn't like they were like acting poor or anything but they were acting they were acting like they acted like millionaires when really they were billionaires you know yeah so
0: interesting yeah so I wonder why I always wonder that too because it's like what like you know when you die like you're not going to have that money anymore so like you billions of dollars like that's more than you ever need in your life Like, well, you know, a lot
1: of it, a lot of it, like when somebody is a billionaire and they run a company, like a lot of their money is tied up in that company, right? There's that Two, I think also a lot of people who do go on to become billionaires, like you have to have a certain mindset in order to get to that level. And part of that is like, for some people being frugal and like knowing how to work with money money. exactly like there's some people who it's like you know from their personality they could never be a billionaire because they would spend they they don't know how to handle money and like maybe coming i think in some cases it you know if that's like hardwired in your personality we were listening to a podcast recently actually chris and i it was a one of his podcasts and we were in the car and it was um this like person who talked to people who like already had money and had issues. And so he was talking to this couple who the man had like made a shit ton of money. He was super loaded, multimillionaire and he would never let his wife spend money on anything. And he was so insanely frugal. And so he was like talking him through, he's like, your wife wants to go on a vacation. Like she describes her dream vacation. She wants to go to like Italy and like go shopping and have dinners and whatever. And he's like to the husband, like, how much do you think this is the most amount of money she could spend on this vacation? And he's like, okay, maybe 20 grand. He's like, You can make that back in two days. Let her go on the freaking vacation. Like, and she's like this poor woman who's like, you know, had a bunch of kids with him. She's just trying to like, she just wants a Peloton bike and like to like redo her front yard. And the guy's like such a stickler and has so much money. And it's like, dude, you're not going to let your wife buy an exercise bike. Are you insane? What's she going to do with this exercise for you? So it was just very, it's like some people just have that mindset. Psychological, you know? yeah. That they're like, well, it's stupid to spend money on no matter how rich you are. If it's a stupid thing. I mean, to spend I get on.
0: a Rolex. Is like, yeah, you don't need a Rolex. but Get like exercise, boy. Come on.
1: Yeah, like buy your fucking Peloton. Yeah. Exercise on, you moron. Anyway, I digress. So just also another side note. Honey and Barry had conceived their first baby, Lauren, on their own and had her successfully. But after her, okay. Honey had a series of miscarriages. And after nine years, so when Lauren was nine, they started to have their other three children using Barry's sperm and a surrogate, which was Ooh. very uncommon at the time. Um, it's not super relevant, but you know, something that's different. interesting. How old were they at that time? Do you know? So at the time of the deaths, I have it written down later, but Lauren, I think, was Four, where, 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 where. Okay, Lauren was 43, Jonathan 34, Alexandra 32, and Kaylin 27. And how old were they when they died? Barry and Honey, I think they were 70 and 75. She was 70 and wow, was 75. Okay. Um, okay, so the immediate family got to speak to the detectives, but they were super unsatisfied with how the investigation was going. And we will get to that a little bit later. But they were not being dramatic. The police were really not doing their best work. And they opted to hire so the, so the family. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, people are always like, you know, it always seems that, you know, if it's like poor people, the police are going to do a shitty job. Yeah, and you'd if it's think like, they'd
0: care. It's rich white people.
1: You'd think they'd really care, but they were like not um, not doing the best. All right. Well, maybe they were anti-Semitic police possible I but I think I think the the Bruce MacArthur thing was a big thing it sounded like they were really um in over their heads at this point
0: I mean like Toronto seems like it's so fucked up like guys get it together there's lots of crimes here I know maybe
1: they need a bigger t- maybe they need a bigger department if they can't handle two it seems like there's investigations. Lot of murders
0: and like yeah like, you know? get it
1: together guys it's not really yeah. good to hear that the the police and the homicide unit in your city like can't handle two investigations (laughs) that's not a good feeling (laughs) like yikes okay so this is this will not this is not very uh doesn't shine a good light on them okay so because they were not happy with how the investigation was going, and rightfully so, they went on to hire their own investigation team. So they hired a man named Tom Clatt, who was a 19 year veteran of the Toronto Police Force and an ex homicide detective, okay. and also one of Canada's top criminal lawyers named Brian Greenspan. Brian ordered second autopsies on Barry and Honey. He hired coroner Dr. Jim Kames Carnes. Uh, and he was retired, but he was very happy to jump back onto the case. And he was to oversee things. And he hired Dr. David Shason, who would perform the actual autopsies. And um, you can see it was quite the team. But given who they were, money was no object, so they got to hire the best of the best. So Dr. Shaysen went on to perform the second autopsies. He had similar findings to Dr. Pickup. He did point out that after looking at the crime scene photos, that it would have been possible. It would not have been it would not have been possible for either Barry or honey to have died by strangulation in the position that they were found in, or it would have been very mm-hmm. hard. And he believed that there were not enough um, weight or downward force to cause the strangulation in that position. Um, so
0: yeah, that makes sense though.
1: Yeah. Cause they're like sitting down and they're sitting tied. Yeah. Right. So Ugh. Jason hypothesized that the Shermans had both been murdered by persons unknown, probably a hit job. And that, um, and then had been set up that the, the way that they were found. Okay. So he seemed to really um, not like the murder-suicide theory. I, I don't either. I agree. Yeah. The day after the second autopsies, on Thursday, December 21st, 2017, a funeral was held for Barry and Heine Sherman. And it was attended by over 7,000 people, including John Tory, mayor of Toronto, Kathleen oh, Wynne. Premier of Ontario at the time, and Justin yeah. Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada. So like, oh, Justin Trudeau!" It was a big deal, and like everyone was there. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about some of the Toronto homicide division fails in this case, because um, it Oh to do- God, tell us, do poor work. Um, so the investigation carried on, but there were many criticisms aimed at the police, and truth be told, they seem more than fair. And they seem to really justify the Sherman children retaining their own private investigation team. Okay. So here's an unexhaustive list of things they fucked up on. First, police were aware of the second autopsy performed by Dr. Shason, but it took them five weeks to finally speak with him about his findings. And it's like, you don't want to know? You don't want to know. Yeah. And you know. also, what about
0: the weird surveillance thing? Well, that's in the list. Okay.
1: There was no attempt to take fingerprints or DNA from people who frequented the Sherman house, which is a common thing to do so that you could see if there was anybody unknown fingerprint wise or DNA wise. Yeah. Many people close to the Shermans were not interviewed for months and they were like, hey, why would you not interview me? Hello. Also, (laughs) I hate this (laughs) camera footage taken from so there was camera footage taken from Apotex and mm-hmm. from the couple across the street who had a clear view of the Sherman house oh, and they were
0: okay.
1: not looked at for more than a month.
0: Dude. Why? What and were they doing? Ex- the, How long would it take to look at this? And
1: there was also like, there was a lockbox on the door because of the real estate showings. They didn't look in that box for two weeks to even see if it was there. And all these people are like, Hey, Hey, we have footage. Hey. And they're like, Oh, well, we'll get to it. And even like, with the couple, what are you doing with your time? It was like uh the couple a police woman came like weeks later to mm-hmm. talk to them and they're like, "Oh, did you look at the thing?" and she's like, "No, I haven't seen it yet." And then she started going on about how she had like her, she couldn't find daycare for her kids and all the shit and it's like, "Lady, people are dead. They're dead. Do your job." Yeah. we are like, "Gets like, what's going on?" Oh my god. Okay. So, the Sherman children were even like without they were they were upset with the investigation but they didn't even know about all this shit until six weeks following barry and honey's (laughs) deaths and the police continued to work on the case with the idea of the murder suicide it was like so obviously not that dropped that theory but it's like clearly not that right i know i don't see any indication that it is that besides somebody besides that like the and i understand why journalists would assume that because the police were like we're not looking for suspects at the time why why would you not be looking for suspects at the time? Look for some suspects, man. That's your job. Yeah. Look for the fucking suspects yeah. of the murder. So, anyway, that's where I'm going to end part one. Oh my god! We'll get to a lot more weird shit in part two. Okay. Oh, there's more weird shit. Well, we'll get into all like the my list of suspects. Okay. And most of the okay. Okay. Right. Um. So yeah. So. Any so we wrap uh,
0: give us a preview without spoiling anything. Do you have an idea of who you think it is?
1: I don't think there's, I don't have any solid evidence. Point no, but anything. do you have
0: like an opinion?
1: Uh, I have, I have a list of people. And one is I find extremely their behavior and uh, their oh. behavior and their, what they have said has been very suspicious. Okay. It's, and that like it's that's interesting to i'm interested to hear and there's also like i think i then i point out a couple of people who have possible motive right okay i'm interested so, to hear those so there's that so look forward to that next week yeah um reach out to us uh hello at whos knocking podcast.com sorry yeah. i was i always can't remember anything that's our email address give mm-hmm. us a shout give us suggestions for our 50th episode coming up
0: what would you like to hear um,
1: Then Instagram, um, who's knocking podcast? Twitter, who's knocking pod? Give us a shout. Say hi. And that's all. So stay safe because you never know
0: who's knocking.
1: This podcast is produced in collaboration with Lost Line Media. Artwork by August Digital. Music by Matthew Cook.